Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the smoothest glass of Amarillo for your mind. Two crickets in a thorn tree. I am half of your hosts, Nicholas Larimer, joined, as ever, by the other half of the hosts, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. And, yeah, today we have, I think, a fairly boilerplate episode. Um, we, uh, we've been thinking a lot, but I think about the... Uh, 9-11 anniversary. It's the 20 years since the terrible terrorist attacks in New York and Washington, D.C. Um, and we're actually probably maybe an hour or two after this podcast goes up, um, going to be speaking to uh, our current CEO and our incoming CEO at the IRR uh, about what this really means for America 20 years later. Um, and this is sparked, I think, by France having some interesting observations because he was just in the United States. Uh, so that'll be, I think, probably quite a good discussion. Um, so look out for that. And uh, yeah, so Gabriel, how are things going? I think we may have missed last week. I'm not actually sure. I can't remember now. It's uh, it's confusing times. Uh, things are going <laughs> well. Uh, I suppose the my obsession is the election matter. And yes, yes, yes. Well, a week I mean, ago on Friday... It's we just won. the fate of our democracy. Yes. <laughs> we went to the Constitutional Court. We were amongst the parties that said don't postpone, and the Concord said don't postpone. So we're very happy we won. Then the IEC's reopened the candidate lists, and uh, that looks completely legally unjustifiable. Uh, so, so back to the court again. But at least, back to the courts. Yeah. We are having our election. And even if the IEC has demonstrated that it is, I mean, uh, look, I've I've been involved in elections for you know since I was sixteen, uh, and while it does definitely vary on the ground from voting station to voting station, kind of from the mid ranks up, the IEC, in my experience, is pretty biased in favor of the ANC. Um, it's always been that to some degree, um, there, but now it really seems like we've we've turned a corner that it's not just like a little bit of favoritism. It's now quite sort of blatant. That's my impression yeah. anyway. Oh, that's very much what it, I think that's what the evidence is pointing to. Uh, mm. We will, we'll see what their papers um, argue tomorrow by noon. The Concord has instructed yeah. them to face these allegations that they are basically bending the rules, breaking the rules to suit the ANC's agenda. So we'll see what that happens with that. I, I don't want to get too much stuck into that. There were one note on elections and the way things change. I played tennis yesterday, so it's the first time I've played tennis since I had the coronavirus. Oh, so it's been like six weeks, five weeks or whatever how, it is. And how are the lungs? No, great. It's so happy to be back out in the sunshine and it's springtime. And we played, there were seven or eight of us, a group organized by old family friend, Everyone there was between 24 and 32. And uh, pretty much all of them were like uh, fabulously dressed and used the hip lingo and super they were, awesome they were cool. down with the, with the kids, yo. They are. <laughs> Dude, these were the kids getting digging down. And there's like DJs and marketing managers, the trendies. And someone mentioned, uh, I mentioned that there's like a beach volleyball tournament coming up right next to where the tennis courts were um, 
on Heritage Day, and I couldn't remember which weekend it was. But then, so inevitably, we had to have a minute-long discussion about Heritage Day coming up. And they were all very angry that Heritage Day has been whitewashed. They said the true essence and the true origins of this holiday have been completely lost to time. So then I said, what, are the true es what is the true origin story of Heritage Day? And not only did none of them know what Shaka Day was, <laughs> like literally half of them didn't know who Shaka was uh, or didn't know, like they were like, yeah, Shaka's the guy who fought the British. Yeah, yeah, no, dude. That's like... amazing. Then, then I was explaining because, and then the the the, the sort of um, the conceit was that th there was like a uh, someone there from a European who works for a European embassy. I won't say which one. And so everyone was like, "Okay, now we'll try and explain it to him." So I was trying to explain about how the IFP didn't want to be in the election because of the People's War. And then that got people kind of nervous hearing about how IFP guys and ANC guys were killing each other. They're like, uh, I was like, okay, never mind. I'm not saying it's true, but let's just take it for granted that that was the argument being made. Um, and then they didn't want to be on the ballot. And then, like, you know, one way of looking at it is that the Zulus get a public holiday at the last minute uh, as part of the bargain to bring them back on board so that they will go on the 1994 ballot. And it's so last minute that their IFP gets stuck on. Uh, to like yeah, 15 million sticker. ballots with a sticker one at a time because they can't reprint them. Dude, literally no one else knew that. You know, that is just depressing, <laughs> actually. Like, it is. These you are know, smart people, there's something dude. cool. We, we, we live in this age, right, where like we're, we're supposed to all be obsessed with history. You know, that's, that's like kind of the, the central thing of wokeness. And yet, no one knows anything that happened more than five minutes ago. It's as though time began in 2016. It is the stupidest, yeah. most frustrating. Uh, yeah. No, so I'm not terribly surprised by that, but uh, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you, you spread some wisdom. Um, well, I did, and then I felt a little bit awkward. Then I had to like backpedal and say nice things about the weather so that they didn't think I was, you know, after a moment like that, one does have to go the extra a little mile a little bit. Realist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To not <laughs> give off the impression that, I mean, I am a bit of a patriot. I do care about this country, and, and I think it's really. Dude, awesome mean, like, and important to know some things about what happened. Now, I think Heritage Day is kind of a bit silly in a lot of ways, right? I think I think it's kind of like uh, it's just like a weird compromise day, as you said. You know, it comes from this origin of like just a sort of universalizing rebranding of Shaka Day to make it kind of for everyone. But God damn it! Like when it's being attacked in such a stupid way, I have no feeling but to rush out and defend yes, it. Yes, because... exactly. <laughs> they were like, "No, you must scrap it. It's just, it's just about bribes and and lies." Oh. I was like, "What lies? What have you heard about Heritage Day?" Like, give me one. Yeah, yeah, the, give, me, they give me one thing. Third half they were of like, conversation what? on on seven o two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> Oh, but other than that, I mean, look, you've got to enjoy the spring. I've got flowers in my office. I've got, 
I'm very impressed with the trees that are all so full of leaves that are not justified by the rain that we've had. It's it's mainly justified by savings. Those trees opened up their savings account in autumn. They banked some water in their savings account. Now the sun has come back. They're putting that water to good use, making leaves. I think that's very impressive. It shows a hell of a lot more wisdom than I can manage uh, most weekends to just you know, not do too much, take it easy, plan for the future. Uh, And it's wonderful. And uh, yeah, I I must say it will not surprise any of our listeners uh, to to know that I really don't like spring, um, mostly because I sneeze a lot. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we're we're not the same. No, (laughs) but I'm glad that people are out there and enjoying the sun, (laughs) even if I'm not. So, and one of the things to do on a Sunday is to read the Sunday papers. And I feel like some of the Sunday paper stories are going to segue into one of the things that I want to discuss today. Um, Shall we, shall we do the American Sunday paper thing first or the, uh, let's let's start with the American one because I'm not sure how much there is to say, Um, but it's just kind of funny and it's kind of weird. Um, So, those who may not be in the know, America's biggest state, California, it's not been that well run recently. Um, uh, for example, it has had load shedding, um, <laughs> but for different reasons to us, which is which is quite crazy. Uh, but that's that's not that's not the funny thing. The funny thing is that uh, the governor, Gavin Newsom, is facing a recall election. So in California, if you get enough people to sign a petition, basically you can uh, hold an election to hold an election to kick out. The governor it's kind of like an impeachment done by the people um yeah it's a sort of quite interesting concept anyway um so gavin newsom is now fighting for his political life and there uh, if he goes out there's going to be someone who takes over from him um i can't remember exactly how their system works but i think it's sort of all the candidates run together they have these things called like jungle primaries where like everyone is all at the same time regardless of party and so it's possible that the person who could be taking over from him is a black Republican talk show host, conservative dude called Larry Elder. Now, there was an interesting thing that happened the other day, which is that Larry Wait, Elder... And just, and just, to, yeah. just to say, um, Larry Elder's pretty great. I, I, I think that he's... Um, He's one of the more sober voices in the American political discourse. There's some crazy Republicans and some crazy Democrats. And Larry Elder doesn't seem to sit well with, with either of those sorts and varieties. He is um, in some ways conservative. <laughs> that make me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but he's, but he's, he's like a, I don't know. He just seems like a very sincere guy who's also at the same time committed to like practical empirical based thinking so uh i think that's pretty rare on the left and on the right whereas gavin newsom has got gavin a ver- awful. <laughs> yeah he really is one of the worst like some of my american friends that are like solid democrats of like would 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 like to see the yeah, back so of him because he's a he's a humiliation he's famous for, exactly he's famous for basically two things one 
is breaking his own COVID lockdown regulations so that he could go and have dinner with the top state uh, health officials, which is which is the showing. which is amazingly <laughs> in flagrante delicto. Right. So the people, like, the people who were supposed to be enforcing and setting the rules on COVID, and him went and had dinner together in public, breaking their own rules. It was incredible. Anyway, so that was pretty crazy. Um, he's also, of course, uh, famous for telling every audience precisely what they want to hear, even if it completely contradicts what he told the previous audience. <laughs> so, yeah. He's yeah. He's he's not a good not a good dude. There's no. No terrible surprise that he's facing a recall election in one of the most heavily democratic states uh, in, in the country. Right. So that, and that's and that's the important background to right. get. Right. Is that that California has become a very blue state in the American sense, and for it to be interesting, you really do need just about one of the worst, uh, a, a, you know, one of the worst Democrats ran, running against one of the best Republicans, and I think that is kind of what. Uh, Larry Elder versus Gavin Newsom looks like. So, in terms of this, to, yeah, yeah. So. Here's here's what happened to Larry Elder the other day. He was visiting, I think, a homeless camp because, of course, one of Newsom's and in general California's big problems at the moment is that uh, there has been a massive exponential growth in the sort of homeless problem in California. Weather's pretty nice, so a lot of homeless people from across the U.S go to California because it's not so cold and harsh. And also uh, the cities and the state tend to not enforce um, sort of like vagrancy laws and, you know, whether you're camping on the sidewalk, that kind of stuff. So there's big homeless camps all over uh, uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco and places like that. And Larry Elder was visiting one of these homeless camps. He was talking to the homeless and they were kind of, you know, it was a campaign stop to kind of emphasize how he's like... Uh, you know, uh, dealing with the problem, but also not like a heartless monster kind of guy. And a woman uh, ran up to him wearing a gorilla mask and threw eggs at him. Um, and then was, uh, the, was I think, uh, unmasked later and, 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 and caught by the sort of crowd. And I think one of the eggs hit him in the head, but like didn't actually mm. break. Mm-hmm. So you think, oh, well, you know, that's not terribly unsurprising. Um, this kind yeah. of thing happens from time to time. You know, in, in the UK, there were, right, there was a whole really stupid trend that really stupid activists were throwing milkshakes at people. Yeah. Um, which I thought was was profoundly toxic. But anyway, it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to a politician before. No. However, um, certain people have pointed out... <laughs> If a white woman wearing a gorilla mask, uh, for example, let's just say threw eggs at uh, Barack Obama while on the campaign trail, the media reaction may have been slightly different. In fact, this has not been particularly well covered by any of the major media outlets, not CNN, not, yeah, not any of the big ones. None of them um, at all. So here's part of what's important. Also, none of the print ones... The Los Angeles Times did cover it. The headline was Larry Elder cancels homeless tour after hostile reception. Yes. After after negative reception, something like that. Like just reading that, you would kind of think that it was from the homeless people that he got the hostile reception. Yes. And that he's like kind of too weak to like go and chat to some homeless people who use strong language to describe the difficulties that they face. 
Um, so it's really poor coverage, and 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 this yeah, and this and the and the and so okay, okay. So one point is the counterfactual point. Had it been the case that a a left wing uh, black politician had been uh, degraded in this way, uh, would have there would there have been wall to wall coverage? Yes, there would have been. And and this article does a really good job of giving you a sense of what wall to wall coverage means. He sort of he lists the this article that I'm referring to is by Kyle Smith, I think. From Kyle Smith the at the National Review. He's he sort of goes a film reviewer, um, I think, most of the time. <laughs> but he goes but through he, the columnists yeah. that he's used to reading in the Washington Post and the New York Times and the New Yorker and so on, who at the Atlantic at Vox. Who, who would touch on this issue. He goes through the kinds of moves that they would make, the rehearsals of, uh, you know, Vox uh, grim video history of like 101 times that uh, white people used a monkey trope to humiliate black people, uh, a panel of Asian-American experts to say what the special problems are that California has and that it's not just black people, but that it's especially black people who suffer this sort of racist bigotry. And... The comedians on the late night shows, Jimmy, Jimmy, Trevor, and so on, who would uh, find out who this unmasked person, who this who this gorilla lady's name is, what her face looks like, and make Which fun of her appearance, yeah. and make fun of like whatever biographical tidbits they can pick up. Now, this is realistic. This is what we saw happen. I saw this happen because I follow American news, for example, um, in the spat between a Harvard ornithologist who was looking at birds in Central Park, New York, and a woman who was walking her dogs and then called the police on him. And uh, he he caught her on video saying, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them you're a black man and they're going to catch you. So she was totally trying to... It didn't work out that way, but that was a huge... You know, no harm was done. These Both these people were... Neither were political or public figures. But that story really was carried in exactly this way. And it's one of right. many. So this, let's let's grant that the counterfactual is true. I think the counterfactual must be true. If it had been a black Democrat, uh, this would have been covered by CNN, New York Times, etc., wall to wall. What is what is the point of this counterfactualizing? I think that because I think sometimes people get the. I don't know. I the, the reason you something that you said when you brought it up before the show was that it do, it does give a sense of how the how did you put it that these esteem teams are like opt-in opt-out yeah yeah opt-in opt-out so uh larry elder to certain people who would consider themselves you know uh what's the the woke term allies allies of blackness um larry elder is just not considered black in those people's eyes and so why would he be attacked in a racist manner because he's not black right that's no one says that but people kind of think as though that were true Right, and and this is and this is, so that it's it's absolutely correct. Larry Elder is is not a champion of Team Black in the way that most self-identified champions of Team Black uh, think makes any sense or applies at all. So, in this sense, he's not black. He doesn't get the he doesn't get the army of social justice warriors to defend his good name. In the face right. of such an attack, that any black person would get, 
Right. And this is a sense in which it's important to understand what one means when one says that race is a social construct. Now, of course, this is the sense of race being a social construct has nothing to do with um, what a doctor might be interested in when it comes to amenia or kidney failures across different groups or whatever. It has to do with this sense of like there are these there are actually teams involved here. There are patterns of practice and there are ways of opting in and opting out. And I think that fluidity is part of what is so unnerving and difficult um, for, for race nationalists. And this is often why, this is one of the things that's so fascinating about W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, right. the kind of archetype, the, the architect in some ways, of of black essentialism in america is that you can see just by looking at a photograph of him with his his german mustache that he fashioned after kaiser wilhelms ii after he saw him there in the wilhelms Kaiser when he was there as a student and he thought he was so cool you can see that this guy has a bit of a problem he felt he faces a problem in convincing people that he's black right so he has to come up with a story about how he's definitely black and how and how black people are all in it together and you mustn't worry about this thing on the level of pigment because he's, he's sort of mixed race. And, and so that's one way that you might think that it's fluid, that race is fluid, that people can, you know, someone who obvi obviously looks black and someone who obviously looks white can have a baby and then that's confusing right, is, things. That is that is, is one way that it's fluid. But that's not really the way that it's fluid. The way that it's really fluid is how you choose your allegiance and how people perceive the allegiances that you've chosen and how that plays out in the that's the much more important way is the social way. And even Right, as 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 uh, Joe Biden said on the campaign trail, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Yeah, he literally said that. <laughs> And Toni Morrison, bless her, let great uh, – uh, anyway, she called Bill Clinton the first black American president. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So it, even though this isn't, I think, talked about that much, this idea that, that blackness is actually a very kind of socially applied thing. I mean, you know, the woke, the woke people kind of mention it, but they, they seem to talk about it a different way because they – I don't know. It's it's kind of weird. So so they kind of connect the idea of blackness and being black to you, right? So they say that that if you're if you're black, you can never get away from blackness. This is this is a claim that's often made by the sort of critical race theorists, and that if you're white, you can never get away from whiteness because society is programmed in all these mysterious ways to to treat you like this. So they recognize this sort of fluid nature but then they once again reconnected back to essentially race essentialism right yes which is well, which is why they come out with all these kind of really racist uh, so it's interpretations a, of things yeah so they say it's essential and you can never get away from it but not because of genetic stories in yes. fact because of social stories and social stasis so they they look at the world as if it is 1970s apartheid or it is 1950s america 1950s or whatever america, yeah and they're like, you know, on the basis that nothing has changed since then, which is not a true basis, but that's their right. assumption, nothing will ever change. And so everyone's stuck in this thing. And I think, so that is part of the confusion. I think a huge, a deep and 
difficult part of the confusion, and I feel this um, in a strange way. I've got an anecdote to illustrate this from the weekend, but let me just say the general idea is is that, I mean, blackness is, is very under-discussed as a by people who want to analyze kind of esteemed teams. Whiteness is discussed a lot and the problems of being white and how to be white and so on. Um, so here's one of the challenges is that you, that there are always going to be two routes forward. One is to like drop this allegiance and say, actually, if things aren't working, it's precisely because people are trying to act according to a bad code of conduct. So here's a code of conduct. It says, you know, depending on how you look, you should treat yourself differently, treat other people who look the same differently, treat people who look different differently, but all the same in the same way. Um, that's a bad code of conduct. So you should try and drop that. And and pick up other allegiances, you know. Try and try and make friends with your actual family, uh, rather than treating anyone who happens to look the same as a brother or a sister, um, or you know maybe try and get along with your workmates, whatever it is. Uh, be a be a really good religious person. Be a really good secular intellectual, you know, whatever it is. Pick a team. Okay, so that's one way. But there's another way, which is much closer to home, which is to say, look, if you already care about racial solidarity, if you're in it for your race, then just consider that, like the the like your your idea of blackness or your idea of whiteness, you mustn't get rid of the idea. You must just alter it. So make blackness about being like this rather than like that, right. and. That I mean, that was Steve Biko, right? And that's a, and, the, and and there are lots of good. There's lots of good work to do there. But those two projects move, and those two projects can move in the same direction. Uh, but then they can also move in the opposite direction. The the projects of like take a race idea like whiteness or blackness or whatever and make it better, versus the project of take it and dissolve it away. And let it be replaced by other things that are closer to what really matters. And I think that, like, talk of ethnic identity, racial identity, whatever you call it, um, you can you can see where it's gotten stuck is also where where the politics is failing badly. Like, I think most people have a good story to tell about how to how to reconcile those two different approaches when it comes to quite niche ethnic identities um like what's it like to be an italian you know there's a story about like well you, you do this with your hands and you eat the food yeah uh, eat delicious food and you have you're very passionate and you cry a lot and things like <laughs> that right <laughs> but like when it comes to like voting or like do you work well are you talented are you hard working do you read are you are you anti-intellectual like there's no real there's no like answer like are italian type people right for that, or not, against that's not a hundred percent true i mean there are some perceptions like you know the french people are left-wing which is not true but that's a foreign perception that's kind of imparted right frenchness right no so they can't so the serious... are left-wing yeah so i'm not saying that the stereotypes ever get dissolved but just that they get more interesting and that they get interesting yes. enough that there comes that it that it gets to the point where you're like you're clearly talking about something that's made up, and that's not very real, and that's sort of like a little bit of a silly topic of conversation. 
Right. And that might also have some deep explanatory connection, but probably not. You know, it's like, it's kind of esoteric. Um, yeah. Whereas like with white and black, it's not there. Yes. It's not even close because the, because where would you even begin? It's anyway. Um, so I do think that uh, I do think that the that I, I, I mean part of what's interesting about Larry Elder is that sometimes I think he is like him and Thomas Saul both at times in their career and uh, Shelby Steele sort of speak about trying to be sort of Moses to the black people trying to say, look, we've got to stick together, but we've got to do it in a different way, which is not about affirmative action and handouts and broken families and is about hard work. And yeah, we must stop. We must stop associating blackness with socialism, basically. Yeah, that that's kind of what their mission shares. But then sometimes they so sometimes they want to say, no, look, we need black solidarity, but we need a different code of conduct to attach to blackness. And then sometimes they're like, no, just do drop the the race solidarity and go for a you know national solidarity of patriotism. And and that's confusing. I don't know a good answer. Like I think in the in a utopian world, I know for sure that the good answer is always to to go non-racial. Um, and in this world, that's like the path we're on at the institute. Um, but as we often say, like there's got to be some room for also seeing other ways to to climb the mountain. And here's the right, anecdote I mean, from this weekend. Sorry, go ahead. It's a difficult problem to unpack, right? Because we've got literally, you know, since at least the 1880s, if not longer, that race essentialism and race teams and race esteem and all the stuff has been built into our societies. In that sense, the white people do have a bit of a point is that these things have been built into our society, just not the way they think they, <laughs> they have been Yes. <laughs> Amongst other things, they're more complicated. Like the, the dominant yes. races that are doing bad things politically or th bad things that are being done in the name of race politically are always being done in the name of a quote-unquote victim race. Right. And there's nowhere nearly enough suspicion, therefore, of claiming oneself to be a victim vis-a-vis -vis yep. one's race. Uh, and that's a bit of a nightmare. Okay, but so can I... So here's an example of like the tension in, in a South African context. So uh, hanging out with uh, a good chap, South African polit political analyst, talking about Jacob Zuma. And we actually started out talking about Prince Andrew, uh, this British royal who's in trouble sexual deviancy, terrible allegations, all kinds of things. And the question is, is he going to go to court? Is he going to go to jail? Is he, you know, he's kind of been removed from the royal family. How far is this thing going to go? And then the kind of factual presented was, well, do you think he'll refuse to go to court? Claim that he's a martyr, kind of victim of... Uh, witch hunt of some kind. Some witch hunt. And then stand for contempt of court, then be arrested and go to jail and have his underlings, his his children and so on, um, call for a mass insurrection across the UK. <laughs> Can you imagine that for Prince Andrew? <laughs> do you think do you think twelve people would show up to the insurrection? <laughs> And that's not to say British people aren't crazy. It's just to say 
that yeah, kind of crazy, crazy <laughs> has been redirected into like pot plant gardening arrangements and and right. football fanaticism or, or, and or when they when they do protest in crazy ways it's usually about something like climate change right yeah like, climate they, remember yeah. when when all those um uh, uh british people were climbing up on top of uh, as part of that extinction rebellion thing they were climbing up on top of like trains in the tube and blocking people from going to work to process climate change which ended up in them getting attacked by a mob um <laughs> Yeah, because the no, only thing the British don't like more than climate change is uh, being late for work. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot tolerate lateness. <laughs> Blow up all of those people making me late. Must get to work in time for tea. No, it is very, it is very terrible. And then I, uh, I was, I did an a academic seminar with an extension with the founder of Extension Rebellion. Rebellion at Yale, and I, I had to, I, I had to focus myself to behave myself. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Hmm. Anyway, I had to pull myself towards myself. Anyway, so the point is, okay, so that, so that wouldn't happen. So, so that was a way of getting a flavor, which was interesting to me because I, I felt like, well, I've probably become a bit inured to how irritating Jacob Zuma is. There is something really devastating thinking about it that way. You know, the sort of mm. princeling, rather than face the music you know, really goes all the way to like martyring himself in this funny way. And then of course he's been let out of jail and the big Sunday story and all the headlines is that Ramaphosa approved Zuma being released on medical parole against you, the you know, parole board's I, advice. This I is that headline, yeah. I just laughed. I laughed so yeah. much because it's going to give us so much. Um, it's going to give us a lot to talk about in the daily French show. <laughs> yeah. And the independent sources at Rapport, at City Press, at the Sunday Times. So I don't know. It seems likely with that many leaks. But anyway, the, the but so here was an, so that was, a, I thought that was a useful way of refreshing my sense of indignation at Jacob Zuma. Um, sort of callously making his own esteem, his own ego more important than so many people's material lives uh, by, by saying, look, if you love me, then you, you know, you've got to be down with doing some terrible stuff. Right. So, but then there, then there was another approach that was taken by this old friend of mine who said, you know, the terrible thing about Jacob Zuma is not that he stole the money. If he'd just stolen that money and kept it for himself, at least there would have been an element of racial justice. Uh, you know, this poor black guy who struggled all his way through apartheid trying to kill the Nats, you know, probably deserves to be paid off a billion rand or whatever it is. But instead of just keeping it in black hands, he sort of he he let so much of the money go the way of some bootleggers um from a, a foreign land called India. <laughs> and so this friend of mine was trying to evoke a kind of and I and I and it, it reminded me of what it was like hanging out before the play, because I've done so little of it since. And I I I have lots of social connections who for them that is the issue, right? It's that it's that money was stolen and then didn't go to to Team Black, right? Uh, and Team Indian sometimes seems like Team Black, but sometimes it's like definitely not Team Black. And when it's foreign Indians, it's like definitely, definitely not Team Black. And I can see, and there and there, I felt very uncomfortable because I thought that's not that's not the problem. The problem is not that Jacob Zuma 
was not careful enough about what color of person could steal. <laughs> yes, but that's very definitely not the problem. <laughs> that was not the problem. And in fact, this the way of thinking can just add to the... Yes, the problem was the stealing. And, and, and this way of thinking can add to the problem because then you get yourself into a thing where it's like... And this has been a thing of like, it's just easier and easier every day in this country. It really has increased year on year to to kind of lump Indian South Africans together uh, under a bad name, uh, which is adding to the problem. Um, at the same time, I can see my friend's impulse, which is to, to harness the energy that's already out there, to take it for granted that some South Africans are kind of committed to racial solidarity. And if, if a black dude is stealing money in the name of blackness, uh, they're not really going to care. Clearly, a lot of people didn't care. but yeah. And you need to make them care. So you make people care by saying, look, here's the problem. He's He only stole 1% of the money, and he lets a lot of the money get stolen by the, the other. And, that, and, and, I, and that's the tension. So I know where I stand on that. Um, I know it very clearly, and, that, and, and we all do here at the IRR. So it's not a tension in the sense that it makes my job confusing, but it is a tension in the sense of it makes me, it confuses me about the human condition. It confuses me about right. what it, you know, how it does kind of confuse me that, that someone might not care about the stealing until an Indian person's involved. <laughs> and they, Dude, let me, and, think, and that think... someone might not care about Larry Elder <clears throat> getting throw uh, getting uh, egged uh but that they would care about um about Barry O getting egged and and right. that the and that the difference and that in and that they'll say no it's because he's black that I'm that I care that the explanation so, won't even match the the distinction in the counterfactual there's just these weird things about people when we get into this Right, I think, I think, I think, in a certain sense, this is because we are fundamentally tribal beings. In that we want, we identify with a tribe, we, we identify an in-group, and then we we clutch to that in-group and and see it only as good and only as just and only as magnificent. And anyone who opposes them are evil. Um, and I think that's really baked into our DNA. And I think one of the great projects of civilization, and this is a line I'm stealing from uh, Jonah Goldberg is that you have to kind of tame this impulse. It has to be directed correctly because if it's not directed correctly, you get the Balkans, <laughs> the breakup <laughs> of Yugoslavia, right? <laughs> lots, of, lots of people uh, sacrificing literally everything just to get a leg up over the others for their tribe, even if it means that both sides get pulled down as long as you're just ahead of the next guy. What's the great Zizek's favorite joke is, you know, uh, a, a God comes along and he says to the Slovenian, uh, I'm going to give you a gift. And he says, hey, think about what you want. And the Slovenian thinks, oh, I want a car. and a really nice, like, like milk car. And then he goes to the Slovak and he says, I'm going to give you a gift. And, oh, he's thinking, I want a car. And he says, but whatever I give you, I'm going to give the Slovenian two of them. So then he's like, okay, I want one blind eye. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
Uh, <laughs> the race to the bottom. I make it worse for me. Just make it even worse for him because he's one of them and they're terrible. And it really works. It's like they really enjoy it. Schadenfreude is a real thing, right? It's like sadist, yes, yes. sadistic joy is really happening when the other when the other team goes down. Yeah. So you need. We do need to tame that absolutely. But I think I think part of it is that, and I think part of the way to tame it is is to notice part of the reason the the word esteem is kind of cool is that it's so different from explanation. So the basic unit of esteem is just boo or yay. Yes. And and boo and yay do not figure in explanation as basic units. Right. If you're starting your explanation with boo or yay, then it's not an explanation. And and so you can do a lot of esteemy stuff. You can do a lot of booing and yaying, booing the guys that throw the eggs at some people but not at other people, booing the president who steals like this but not like that, whatever. You can do a lot of that without explaining yourself. And and then these contradictions don't matter. Then it doesn't matter yeah. that you'll defend this black person against quote-unquote racism and not that black person and i'm not clear that by the way it's not clear that this was a racist incident at all it's just right, that right we, by we your own no standards details. as a yeah sorry yeah uh, yeah we have we have absolutely no details of this it could entirely be that she was just a, a, a an angry lefty who wanted to throw an egg at the horrible conservative man yeah right? and, and indeed that that i would suggest that's probably the more likely explanation it's just, as you say, you know, by the standards that are usually applied to these things, things would be told. The story would be told rather differently where the political position is different. But and that's the sense in which those stories aren't explanations in the first place. Right. They're just elaborations of the phrase boo. Yeah. You can tell the difference between an explanation and an estimation by the logical inferences that you commit yourself to in an explanation. If you explain yourself thus and so then next time thus and so applies, you will act in the same way. That's how you're explaining your behavior. And if you do change your mind, you'll say, I'm sorry, my explanation was wrong. I said I was doing this for this reason, but that wasn't true. You'll change your explanation so that, it, so that it's got a real logical connection to what you're doing. And estimation has no duty to do that. And so we live in a universe of estimations. Uh, some of the time, and that, and so taming it doesn't mean making those things go away. You got to do a bit of esteeming, and you got to do a bit of explaining. It just means not confusing the two in oneself or in others. I think that's I think that's kind of the 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 slightly um, not as exciting version of what Carl Cohen's trying to do. Like this 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 conservative writer in America, he writes the story about how the response would have been different if it was a lefty. And I think what he's trying to do is get a lot of anger going. But he's not supplying a lot of yeah. thoughts to go after that um, <laughs> because he's not supplying the details of the situation. We don't know those details. And he's not giving like an analytic framework of how to well, avoid making the same mistake. Well, to be and, fair, part of the reason that uh, we don't have those details is because of this lack of interest in the story to begin with. Correct, correct, correct. No, so I'm not saying it's wrong not to rail, mm. but uh, when, when one has a bit more time, I think this is what one can say, is that this is this is what you need to do all the time, is kind of just figure out when, when are you saying something that you're really committed to and when are you just saying it for the sake of... 
putting it out there. Right, right, right. <laughs> Nick, can I cut to the South African one? Yes, you can. We have 16 minutes. So in in theory, we've got 16 minutes. I just so I thought below the line. I've I've gotten back into the habit of buying the Sunday Independent. Uh because it was my favorite newspaper as a kid, and it's the first newspaper that I really felt very proud of being published in quite a few times as an art critic and for other reasons. Um, so last week, the Sunday Independence headline was, its, it's sub-headline was, uh, South African natives on their own. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So is you this- said this was written this century. <laughs> Are we are we, <laughs> are we in the world of esteem or explanation here? Is this just like team allegiance <laughs> advertising or is someone really trying to... Dude, let me read you a bit of this. Black South Africans are on the brink of becoming an endangered species like the Native Americans and will be removed from the country's socioeconomic and political power spheres. According to Olani Dube, a politician, analyst political analyst at the Gobera Institute, a plan is underway for whites to repossess what they borrowed blacks in 1994, and the ANC had become a vehicle for that. Quote, the ANC is just the hearse to execute the plan. The bigger plan is to obliterate the political hegemony of South African natives. The British and Europeans are repossessing what they borrowed us during 1994, he said. I think the natives need to find their own Cyril Ramaphosa, someone who will have an underlying love for the South African natives. And it goes along in the same vein. Now, this is very strange. This is a call for black solidarity that says the existing call for black solidarity under a president who's like quite sweet, but has clearly answered that our people means, uh, you know, not all South Africans, who's pushing for all kinds of uh, racy uh, policies. It's not racy enough. This is actually just still a secret white plot. I, I'm glad that this was reported because um, it kind of reminds one yeah. of what it's, so it's, many South Africans are being told and what makes our work important to not to, – to South Africans don't get cornered into the position of thinking the good thing to do is now start calling people natives – <laughs> and and saying that the natives are being attacked by the ANC, which is a which is a European imperialist project to achieve British hegemony. <laughs> it is so mad, but it is exactly what is being poured constantly into into the minds of South Africans. And and if you want to know why we're in the messes that we are, it's because there are people like this uh, not getting nearly enough pushback. Yeah, dude. So Klolani Dube needs some pushback. I think props to the journalists for writing up the story. I think they wrote it up in a good way too. Um, this week, the below-the-line spot in the same thing reads uh, on the cover of the Sunday Independent reads, Marikana, at least until yesterday. <clears throat> and by the way, the last week's edition has like five other articles that kind of elaborate on further arguments that 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 South Africa is about to be taken over by um, by whiteness uh, or that the ANC has already been taken over by whiteness hard to tell there's different there's different slots anyway it, it wasn't just that one thing 
this week, the headline is Marikana, at least until yesterday, we were suing your lordship. Which is a crazy position to be in. You're like, you know, you're in front of the judge and you're like, by the way, we just figured out we, we've been suing someone and it turns out the person we're suing is you. Uh, and that's because this judge, Colin Lamont, has been accused of, owns shares in Sabanya Stillwater and is some allegations that he's not properly disclosing, hasn't properly disclosed, timelessly disclosed um, his relationship to that company, which is involved in the Lonman Marikana case that he was presiding over. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. Um, but it, it connected to another story about a judge who uh, also seems not to have sort of played according to the rules uh, that you would want a, a judge to play according to. Um, and this is uh, a high court judge in Durban who, uh, what's his name? Judge Mahendra Chetty who is presiding over a 28 million rand corruption case involving the KwaZulu-Natal deputy chair, Mike Mabuyakulu. Anyway, he said that no one is allowed into court unless they've got a COVID vaccine card, <laughs> including the accused and their lawyers and the media. So, like, not all of the accused are vaccinated. So, like, if you've been so accused of a crime, you can just <laughs> not get vaccinated. Yeah, exactly. You, you commit whatever crime you like as long as you're not vaccinated. You don't have to go to court. It's cool. You'll never get sentenced. No, that doesn't seem I don't think that's legal. I mean, access to the courts. <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to anyway, it's confusing at the very least. We're gonna figure it out. We're gonna figure out about the Lonman thing, we're gonna figure out about this thing. But these are the kind of things that make me worry. Um in a in a sort of peripheral way um because they because it's new to me and i haven't looked deeply into it so i don't really know what to think about this but i i, I have thought deeply about one particular case which took another turn uh this week and it's just something i wanted to to go over briefly briefly and that's the death the death of joao rodriguez who was accused of murdering ahmed timol and the allegation that Joao Rodriguez murdered Ahmed Timol was the first apartheid-era war crime, effectively, or crime against humanity, that was that was opened up, insofar as is possible, as a criminal matter in the new South Africa. So obviously there's been a lot of, um, you know, apartheid police and military guys and whatever that killed and tortured people. Um but that was dealt with through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for the most part, uh, which was not a criminal matter. And there, there are some exceptions, Eugene de Kock, but that was dealt with in cases that opened way back when. I mean, Eugene de Kock, the first case against him was opened by the Nationalist Party era police force because they accused Dr. Death of uh, sort of fraud. Basically, he created a bit of a slush fund to pay for some of the things that he wasn't allowed to do. Um, and that mattered because they're alienating themselves from him and saying that he's acting ultra vires. It's not under orders. Um, I don't want to get into that because I, I don't know that case so well. But the point is that that was part of the previous dispensations, uh, wheels of justice rolling on. 
um, uh, the Timor case was a different thing. This is like guys acting under orders without going around the justice system in any way and murdering Ahmed Timor by throwing him out the window and then saying no one is to blame, then having a judge find no one to blame at an inquest into the cause of death. And once the inquest concludes no one is to blame, no one gets punished for what happened. So it's right. a, mur a murder unpunished. And that's a story that most South Africans have heard. And that's a story that I heard um, the first time I ended up doing archival research because the case had been reopened, the inquest had been reopened, um, and the Timor family was involved, and Salim Isop, who is was Timor's friend and was arrested with him, and subsequently uh, had a long story which involved spending decades in the United Kingdom, making some decent money and so on. Uh, he came back, he helped reopen the thing, and I was asked to go into the Vitz archive, as it turns out, to research material that had been archived by the Institute of Race Relations, uh, to just add some more details to the story. Everyone was reporting on it. It was on BBC and CNN. It was also on all the local news. Um, but there wasn't a lot of archival detail. So uh, James Myberg at Politics Web said, go to the library. I'll pay you. Uh, see if you could find some some good details. I thought this was a slam dunk, like such an easy story to tell. Apartheid monsters kill poor innocent like Indian South African communist dude who's just trying to fight against a corrupt system. Uh, it was not a slam dunk. It ended up being a three-month research project. I ended up being the only journalist in the country that actually went to find the the trial information of Salim Isop, and that trial was hugely important on the version of George Bezos in his book No One to Blame which summarized the first 13 deaths in detention of South African political prisoners um, and as part of the reason I think why Bezos ended up pushing against Timol's own family uh, and Anyway, the long and the short of it is that the version, I've spoken about this on Two Crickets before, and I've written, uh, between James Myberg and myself, we have written like 10,000, 15,000, like a short book, basically, that's available <laughs> free online, summarizing the evidence. Uh, and, and the evidence clearly shows uh, only one plausible account of what happened. Um, and that's that Timor was tortured uh mentally broken as Aesop had been part of the reason the Aesop archives matter is why it mattered to go to Pretoria to NASA to the National Archives of South Africa to to find those archives is that Aesop was hospitalized um because he had entered a catatonic state uh in John Foster prison I mean it was just him and Timor basically on the floor that they were on being tortured by these trained uh iron fists of the state yeah um and says and but Aesop was physically uh, you know very hard to find much wrong with him 
uh, besides the little marks that betrayed the electric electric nodes that had been applied to the most sensitive parts of his body, uh, there was very little to. He had he had a, a bruise to his one cheek where he'd been struck a blow on the police's version and his own version uh, on being arrested um, on that day. But other than that, very little by way of physical injury. So mainly what's happening is sleep deprivation, being put in awkward positions, being electrocuted in the worst ways, uh, being uh, waterboarded, basically drowned to the point that you like can't handle it and then relieved and then drowned again. Uh, and that combination of things over days, uh, feces-lined food uh, so that it's difficult to eat uh, without feeling humiliation, you know, urine in your water, being urinated on, uh, and being threatened with death, and also being told your friends have betrayed you, all these being sort of hung down the corridor over the stairwell that goes down 11 stories, we're going to let you go, lots of stuff like that can break a man and Timor was in an even tougher position because he was a wonderful communist he really was like I was uh, at the same age sort of late 20s like uh, kind of very enthusiastic about ideas but smoked a lot of weed uh, not super organized the boots that he was driving the car in was f like literally had the name of every registered com like every like communist in the country like you're not supposed to put that in the boot when you're driving to pick up girls at the Shabin on a Saturday, like it's really Ooh, not. Oh yeah, no, this is this is in not the Soviet Union. People like that <laughs> were killed immediately. I would not have survived in the Soviet Union because, like, <laughs> killed hippie stoners did not. They didn't make it as spies as communist spies for the. <laughs> anyway, so but they, they he knew that they had all their names. And they told him that they were going to arrest his friends. And he thought they already had arrested his friends. He had, he had every reason. Salim Isop said several times in his trial, I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to kill myself. And part of the reason that this happened is the same legal team was effectively running both trials, uh, trying to get evidence through the Isop matter to show that had Timol jumped out the window, the state would be to blame. Because what they did was they created a situation where they wanted him to want to kill himself so that the only right. solution they could provide is to tell them everything about his comrades. That would be the only way to relieve the pressure. But instead of providing that as the only way to relieve the pressure, they took him upstairs to the 10th floor. And when they had the changing of the guard, because you had four people, two at a time, running in 12-hour shifts, another guy came up who had been working on the streets and so I had interesting stories to tell. And so the coffee boy, who was Joao Rodriguez, came up with the coffees and papers to sign. He was just like a paper boy, coffee boy. They said, you can't listen to these stories and neither can the prisoner. So will you go stand with the prisoner in the corner office, leave the coffees here, we're going to have a little debrief with one another and when we're ready, we'll call you back and we'll have the changing of the guards. And so... You've got this coffee boy in the corner office with Timol, who finally is like realizes he's in a position where he's unshackled. There's a window open. There's a chance for him to jump out and kill himself and make the torture end. The state is totally to blame in that situation. That is a heinous. Right. Yeah, that's 
Yeah, the, in, the Taliban did that. We would say it's a it's a war crime or a human yes. rights. So, so I mean, that is, and it's systemic. Like, there's there's something interesting about it. It's, it's like because no one pulled the trigger or no one pushed him out, you get the sense of what systemic is supposed to mean. It's supposed to mean like it's taken a lot of people doing a lot of things together to make this, uh, to to cause this death. Yeah, it should be the textbook example of of what systemic uh, violence and oppression violence looks like looks like in in our in South Africa's context like if you if you want to explain to kids in high school that it's not just bad if you hit someone else with a pole it's also bad if you demean them on the basis of their race in all kinds of ways and then put them in the position where you're electrocuting them and their friends and and sleep depriving them and doing all these other kinds of things and then be like well, it's not our fault if he jumps out the window. Then right. this is a perfect example of of what a what a Italian brutalist looks like when they're using a kind of system uh, to get their way. That story is untold, excepting for James and Mai's version, uh, which is the version of the of 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 the evidence. This is my contention. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure that. <laughs> I'm sure that it's worth a read, um, but but here's part of wh why that matters, is that so now Joao Rodriguez, the coffee boy, uh, he was accused of of pushing Timol out the window. On the on the new version that came forward, and was presented a couple of years ago before the judge who just had to consider whether the, the inquest ruling of no one to blame must be changed. And so I say it should have been changed. You can't say no one's to blame. You can't say that this is a suicide. It's not a suicide. It's a forced suicide. You know, if you, if you tell me you're going to kill everyone in my family and you put a gun in my hand and you say the only way to save my family's life is for me to kill myself, I will put a bullet in my brain. That's not a suicide. Right. Anyway, the you know suicide. Yes. The, the, the blame instead of instead of going for that, which the evidence actually supported, uh, the prosecution went after the story that this was all Joao Rodriguez. And there's nothing to support that, for better or worse. I don't know that he was a good guy, uh, but he passed away last week. This this week, uh, and so he was on the news quite a bit. And one of the main takeaways is, well, like now he's dead, the family can never get justice because he died while the trial against him. Now, after the inquest just found someone's to blame, let's do further investigations. But then there was a trial. He was never convicted one way or, an, or exonerated. So justice has never been done. That's a that's such a that itself is such a miscarriage of justice. It's born of such a stupid idea of how this thing worked. That like, mm. if the, if that particular dude is gone, then now, now we don't have the ability to, to rectify the matter. It's pretty wild. It's pretty crazy. And what makes it super strange. And in a way, there's a kind of quintessentially South African aspect here. Uh, is that his obituary was delivered on the TV news largely by his daughter, 
who accuses him of, of abusing her both physically, verbally, and sexually when she was a child. And these accusations she only sort of brought up around the time that the, I think after the trial, after the inquest, and the rest of the family has uh, criticized her and distanced themselves from her, saying that these allegations are not correct and that she did have a tough time and that she was like uh, smacked. Uh, corporal, you know, she did suffer corporal punishment and he was a super strict guy but they, they don't buy the sexual stuff and say that their story contradicts itself. So there's this like family feud, um, both about whether this father sexually abused his daughter and about whether he killed a kind of martyr in the struggle against apartheid. And, and I have no idea what to make of the, of the sexual abuse allegations. I've, I've got nothing to go on beyond what I've just described and what I've seen reported and, and what I've heard her say and, and what I've seen other members of the family say. But there is, it is, I think, um, I think this story, sort of on the back of these other stories about like justice not really being followed through, and I've covered a few other stories where in a bigger way, and I think most South Africans know a few other bigger stories where justice has definitely not been carried in a serious way compared to the little thing where the judge just says you can't come in if you don't have a vaccine passport or whatever. But I do think like it's by the time you get to a story like this with, with Gerard Rodriguez's passing and this like strange family story and all these missed opportunities and, and all these confusing, mutually annihilating claims to truth i think that's what gives the explanation of of why south african news stories do not cover the globe unless it's straightforwardly like the old narrative of like white evil black good you know ANC's great it's all going to work out like that story is an important story sometimes it is a true story um and it's like the the train track through one's brain sort of knows how to assimilate it so those stories go, but there are some South African stories like this one that I think it's like staring into an open wound. It's like staring into gangrene. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not that people don't have time. It's not that people don't care about the country, about it's foreign issues. Much. What we have is sometimes too much to, to, to stomach. Mm -hmm. ah, that's a very good... Uh... Very good note to end on, I think. Mm. This is a complicated place. Um, do you have any recommendations? Um, no, you go first, because otherwise I'm just going to say you should go to Politics Web and read uh, Gabriel and James Myberg's three-part analysis of the Timor case. <laughs> no, you can, you can go with that one. That's not a terrible No, one. no. Um, I want to think of a nice one. It's spring. I want to think of something nice, Nick. I, <laughs> I'm afraid I've lost mine, so I can't remember precisely what it was. So <laughs> I guess I guess um, uh, on the dispatch, the G file, uh, Jonah Goldberg wrote a piece called Everything Wrong with the Labor Theory of Value. And uh, it's, it's, it's just a nice little analysis of that. Of, of an idea that was created by some pretty good economists, but ultimately was a bit flawed because it came out in the very early days of economics. 
and unfortunately has had a very long shelf life because it underpins some of the economic principles behind Marxism and the exploitation of the workers and all those theories. Um, so it's just a nice Good. little rebuttal to that. Okay, I recommend uh, that you remember the name Raducanu. I think I think we said it first here on Emma Raducanu on on two crickets around Wimbledon, uh, which we recommended at the time. I recommended at the time um, earlier this year. Emma Raducanu just won the U.S. Open yesterday. She's 18 years old. It's the first time I think ever that an unqualified tennis player has uh gone all the way to the final and not only did she make it to the final she actually won last night um it it wasn't in some ways not necessarily the greatest game ever only two sets didn't go to three sets uh her opponent fernandez uh leila fernandez sort of uh seems pretty good it's the first time i already watched her play it was it was quite exciting to watch um and I think that there's, I don't know, they they both, but especially Emma Raducanu seems like the kind of star that that is going to be around for a decade and that is going to be a household name. Um, I think partly because she's she's got an attractive joie de vivre. She's got like a a, a sunny disposition that shines out in her smile. Um, and I think in tennis players, especially in female tennis players, uh, it's it can be complicated to talk about looks. Uh, with male tennis players, most of the people I know are quite comfortable saying that Roger Federer was like the most handsome dude in the sport for a while. And then some people liked him for that reason and some people didn't like him for that reason. And some people are like, no, they prefer Nadal. He's like more muscular and, and macho. And some people like Djokovic because he's more like something else. Whatever. People have their stories. Um, uh I think it can be trickier with the ladies uh, because of like insecurities about commenting on, on women's looks. Uh, but tennis is an entertainment. And I think there's something about her, her looking like she enjoys herself so much, uh, which is kind of great. Naomi Osaka, when she first came into the sport, uh, similar kind of trajectory story. She seemed like a very attractive tennis player because she was so mellow. She seemed so... <laughs> unperturbed by what was going on that did not turn out to be super sustainable she's maybe dropped out of the sport at least that's what she says she's certainly become very kind of politically involved in ways that i think distract from her talent um but a common just seems like a bit of a, a joie de vivre person who has made i don't know three and a half million dollars overnight as as an 18 year old doing what she loves to do uh after kind of emigrating from Canada, which seems like a, a marvelous move to the UK, getting a sports scholarship. I think it's like a kind of beautiful story. And uh, if you, yeah, I'm sure there'll be little clips that you can check out to see those highlights. If you care at all about tennis, I am a bit of a tennis nut. Very excited about uh, Djokovic versus Medvedev in the US Open final today. Hoping that the Russian will win. Because I guess at this stage of my life, I might as well admit, like when a Russian person is playing sport, I do kind of back them. Because uh, I, I, our listeners can't see, but I'm shaking my head. Nick is furiously <laughs> shaking his head. I'm just, I'm trying to get married here, Nick. I'm still trying to get married here. 
anyway so i'm i'm enjoying i'm enjoying the sport and um and enjoying the spring i think uh, my only other recommendation is if you haven't think about maybe just buying some flowers or plucking some flowers and putting them in a in a mason jar or a vase or whatever in some water in your living space uh i haven't really done that much before in my life uh but when i recovered from covid i'd been complaining to my mom about how i couldn't smell so she brought me some jasmine from her garden and it was so delightful to smell it and just to feel how like in the evenings it would open up again a little bit and give the room a scent um so i've kind of picked up a, a bouquet or two one for downstairs one for upstairs where i am and it feels a bit grown up and like not the kind of thing i was doing when i was 21 now i'm 31 i'm buying flowers <laughs> whatever dude i think it's great flowers are great spring is great nicholas is a grumpy teddy sometimes uh but even you, you can't see him but he's no, 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 he, no. Knows, so, so, he knows that it's actually great so so i uh I get all the benefits of spring and outside without ever having to leave my room, which is from my bathroom. I can see there's this beautiful fruit tree in our garden and it's covered in really bright pink flowers. Um, yeah. And it's really pretty. And uh, that's all the outside I need. I can see it from my window. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. See it and take it in. All right. Uh, let us bring this ship home. Uh, yeah, no, we, we hope you enjoyed our ramblings. We've managed to keep it slightly shorter this time, although it's still not an hour, but whatever. Um, and yeah, keep that flag of liberty flying.